Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. On today's show, we're talking to a divorce lawyer, and I know what you're thinking. Too bad I didn't meet her four years ago. Uh, Oh, well, she has worked (laughs) hundreds of cases in multiple states and has gained a lot of insight into both love, marriage, and the uglier side of relationships. Um, Her expertise has been referenced in the Wall Street Journal and other publications, and she is the author of The Cult of the Black Card, A Divorce Lawyer's Tale of True Love, Lust, and Lies. Leslie, welcome to the show. Wow, thank you for having me, John. That's quite an introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Oh, I'm sure you will. I sure. I was actually I was on your uh, website earlier, just perusing, and you've got a lot of helpful stuff. That again, yeah, you know, I went through a divorce, and I'm like, hmm, this would have been helpful <laughs> way back then. Um, you know, this uh, this first question I ask to pretty much all of my guests, just to kind of get a baseline. Um, how did you relate to religion the first 18 years of your life? So. In my house, um, religion was more about traditions, traditions around holidays, dinners, foods maybe we ate, um, but it wasn't really about the building, a structure, or having to attend services of any sort. So for me, religion was really about the traditions that our family would repeat over and over. Gotcha. and and. Uh... The, were those, uh, I believe you've mentioned this to me before, those were uh, mostly Jewish traditions, correct? That's correct. So um, those traditions, whether it was the Jewish New Year or whether it was lighting a menorah at Hanukkah or whether it was Passover um, and changing out foods um, and just observing the traditions, my mother always told me that um, being with family was really what religion was about. Um, in our household. I can't say it was like that in every other household. And uh, both my parents um, were raised more in the traditional method of their religion. Um, But we were more casual, I guess would be a better way to put it in our household uh, for our family, for me growing up. So I learned a lot about my religion going to um, temple or Sunday school with my friends. Like I would go with them sometimes. We would have sleepovers and I would get to go with them and I would learn more through them. So um, religion for me in the first 18 years was I respected where my family came from and who I was um, and would carry those traditions on into my adulthood. Gotcha. That's a, I'm very envious of that. That sounds uh, wholesome. <laughs> you know, it sounds, uh, it sounds like a, a positive thing for the most part and nothing, not like a, something that was used to shame you or anything like that. Am, am I correct in that? That is correct. I mean, my mom, um, my dad was raised really religious, actually. 
um, but didn't really share that with us because we were girls and I have a sister and uh, maybe in a lot of religions and I can't speak to those, but in the Jewish religion, there would be more emphasis on the males or the boys of the family uh, learning the religion. But my mother always taught me that you just do the best you can. As long as you're doing the best you can, then that's that's what it's about. And uh, that's really how I've lived my life. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm glad that uh, those experiences were mostly positive. Um, here's a slightly different question I don't ask a lot of people. Uh, how did you view love as a child? And how did that change as you became an adult? So for me, love as a child, I thought everybody was in love with love. I didn't know that people were angry, I guess is a way to put it. And I didn't know that people had such angst about love when I became an adult. I mean, I learned that, but I just thought that everybody loved loving other people and, you know, experiencing love and being in love. I just, I really didn't know any other way. And well, you know, fast forward into adulthood or perhaps first heartache or the loss of someone you love, um, it changed my perspective and it made me realize that not everybody feels that way. Yeah, I think that's definitely, you know, part of that's maturing, right? Like, it's just as you grow older, you're like, you know, people talk about love languages and other stuff, you know, people, it's almost like every individual has a different definition of love. Is is that too extreme to say? You know what I think? I think that, well, I think everyone probably has some sort of different variation or definition of love, but I've come to learn that there's all levels of love that you can have for all different people in your life. You may have love for your siblings that's different than love for your best friend. You may have friends that aren't as close to you, but you still love them. Um, your love for your children, um, you know, I can't speak to everyone, but it's generally unconditional love. You know, love for a significant other. Um, it's it there's all different levels but it's all all encompassing in how you feel about maybe yourself and your life and how you want to live it you know so if you want happiness and peace then you have more room for love in your life and maybe your heart is a little fuller and you have to live without fear i have to say that because i feel a lot of maybe younger people today are fearful of love for being hurt, maybe getting hurt. Um, and I always feel it's better to have loved and lost than not have loved at all. And I know that's a cliche, um, but love is a really beautiful thing. And it's just, you have to respect it. Yeah. Two things. One, I, I, I've heard that paradigm before, right? Like love is on one end of the spectrum and fear is on the other. Um because, uh, and, and another way to put it, C.S. Lewis said to love at all is to be vulnerable, right? Um, yes. Lo you know, loving, love is a risk by definition, um, because there is no guarantees when it comes to love. Um, but people sometimes talk like there's guarantees when it comes to love. And I think that expectation can cause some conflict. I just to jump in. There is one guarantee in love. You can certainly love yourself. And I feel that that's where love begins. You can love yourself. And when you love yourself, I think it opens the doorway to loving others. 
yeah that's something i could do a whole podcast episode on because i think i think there it's a very complicated thing to love yourself um at least it has been in my case i'll say it has been for me uh you know i'm i would say i'm still on the journey of learning that um and uh it's an important journey did you growing up and and kind of you know assuming love is just kind of like this positive thing and not learning till later that there's other sides to it did you ever think you were going to get married um yeah i mean it was just part of the life i grew up in it was you know go to school go to college pick a profession and eventually you would find your you know forever after and get married and probably have a family of your own it's it's kind of the world how I grew up in. I never thought that I would not get married. Um, it just, I think it was just part of the plan of the world I, I lived in. You know, um, that's what we did. That's what girls did, you know? And um, yeah, I, I think that I always thought I would get married. Yeah. Uh, I think when I was younger, when I was really young, I was like, you girls, no. Like, I, I, <laughs> I was not. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be single for life. But obviously, uh, puberty comes along and changes your mind about a lot of things. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, in my, in my religious upbringing, there was an expectation for marriage for sure. Um, but even though I expected to get married, I, uh, I certainly never expected to get divorced, which is kind of the joke, right? Like no one who gets married uh, sure. expects to get divorced. Um, but I think it's I think it's interesting because I think you're right. I think almost at least culturally in the U.S., it seems like everyone kind of grows up with an expectation that they'll get uh, married at some point. Um, and the ones who don't, the ones who don't end up usually getting it right the first time, I feel. <laughs> and uh, those of us who are kind of uh, have our head in the clouds, uh, it usually takes us a few goes at it. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I, I've, I haven't finished your book, but I've read a lot of it. It's a great book. Once again, it's the cult of uh, the black card and uh, just great storytelling and stuff. But um you know, my expertise has to do more with Christianity specifically mm-hmm. or religion in general. You know, you've worked a lot of divorce cases. Has religion ever complicated a divorce case that you've worked? Oh, for sure. Yes, I will say that it has. I mean, I will say that I've, I don't know how far along you are in the book, but when you get to Sam and Ginger, the it's called the casino divorce. Um she was part of a, obviously the names are changed, but she was part of a very, very religious family and divorce was just not a word that they were accustomed to or wanted to accept. And when she wanted out and made a decision, shaking, feeling threatened and hired me to help her, uh, the very next day she was hauled off in an ambulance, a private ambulance, and her family tried to have her committed to prevent her from going through with a divorce. And that was based in mostly in part because it was unheard of in their community that a woman would seek a divorce. So yes, um, religion can 
complicate the divorce process. It's a separate process from the state you live in and that legal process. Um, But with that said, if somebody wants to be unmarried, then you untangle one, one process at a time. So if there are religious aspects that have to be dealt with, then you deal with them while you're dealing with the legalities of whatever the state laws are and where you live. Um, but it can be very complicated in, in some areas. Yeah. I mean, that's clearly a very extreme um, case. I uh, just, just curious, have you dealt with it maybe in smaller ways too, where you just see it kind of like either causing more hesitancy or, um, you know, just like, more people involved than typical in a divorce because I feel like in my experience and other friends' experience, it seems like there's a there's a whole party of people involved in your divorce. Well, I, I think it depends on where you where you come from and um, what your religion has taught you and what's expected of you as a community member or a member of a specific church or temple. I don't want to you know not isolating either or. Um, and there might be guilt associated with going forward with a divorce. Um, it might bring shame on your family because that's what you've been told. Um, and yes, there could be hesitation. Um, but, but ultimately I feel that when people are deeply unhappy, um, or in very, very, um, bad situations, getting out of a bad marriage far outweighs how they might be feeling in relation to their religion at that time, because it's unhealthy to stay in a damaging relationship because it then damages your relationship with your religion too. Right. Not, not talking about it never solves an issue um, ever. So Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'll I'll confess some of my religion uh, indoctrination. You know, um, after my wife had left, we were seeing a relationship coach to kind of see if there was anything uh, salvageable. Mm-hmm. And um, the relationship coach was like, I want you all to answer this at the same time. She goes, uh, divorce is never okay. One, two, three. And I went, yes. And my ex-spouse went, no. And I was like, huh, well, that's a pretty big <laughs> disagreement to have. But it, it kind of hit me because obviously, you know, I didn't I believed like if there was physical abuse or something like that, like I was like, yeah, I mean, there's extreme cases. But in my head, divorce was like a ta- it was it, it couldn't just happen because people wanted it. Like there had to be some sort of justification or good enough reason um, to get divorced and. Obviously, I have very different views now, but I remember that being like such a striking moment for me to realize that even the person I was married to had different opinions about, you know, uh, marriage and divorce. That's uh, quite a situation I found myself in. <laughs> yeah, because you you probably really didn't know each other as well as you thought, right? Yeah, and I think that happens a lot. Where where you, th- I mean, we dated like a long time before we got married. We didn't rush into it. It didn't mm-hmm. feel like we did, at least. You know, that actually brings me to to another question: Is there something specific about marriage that makes it harder than just long term dating? 
Well, you know, uh, I've been asked this question a lot about long-term dating recently. So, yes, is marriage harder? Um, I think it's harder because you've taken that step of making a real commitment. It's a legal commitment. It's a marriage contract to commit to another person to be with them in sickness and in health. And you can think about all the other uh, possible vows you might might take as opposed to long-term dating. Because long-term dating to me is... It's appropriate in certain circumstances. I feel that that when you're long-term dating, you're not 100% in for the long haul. You And you might not be. You might not be, you might not have had those conversations that you would have with marriage. Do we want children? Do we not want children? You know, uh, when do we want children? Where do we want to live? How do we want to work? How do we want our our life? What do we want our life to look like? And I feel that um, I'm not saying marriage is the answer for everybody. I'm not saying that at all. Um, But I feel that when you're married to somebody and you hit a bump in the road, which we all do, you know, because no relationships are perfect and we all grow and change and evolve. When you're married, you make that extra effort to work through those rough patches and you do it together and you do it as a team. And I think being a team is really important because who better to have your back in life than the person you've committed to. When you're long-term dating, if you hit that rough patch, it's just so easy to just say goodbye. And the problem with that is, is for the person who walks away because they've hit a rough patch but they've never worked through it, they're going to carry that into their next relationship so they can long-term date again. Some people are serial long-term daters, I guess, or serial daters, but this is life. And in life, there are challenges. And if you don't work through them and overcome them and figure them out or why things happen or how you respond to them, then no matter what you do, where, wherever you go, there you are. So if you walk away from one relationship that, you know, was great, you know, 90% of the time, but had life's challenges, but you never figured it out, well, you're going to take that to the next person. And you're going to keep running into that. You're going to keep having that problem. So I feel like when people make this commitment to be married to each other, they're making a, a bigger commitment to having a lifelong partnership and love. And in that, there's growth all around, you know, and you you meet the challenges head on and you you don't always see eye to eye, but eventually you come around because you probably that's probably why you married each other in the first place, because you land on the same page, you you know, ultimately. That's certainly the hope I, I I've heard. I've heard it spun this way and I just want to hear your reaction because I don't know where I sit on this idea but um like the thing you're correct that it's easier to break up if you're not married right like it's way easier just legally alone but like probably emotionally too in some ways um because because again marriage often often most often comes with like ceremony and public vows and like family involvement i mean it's a pretty big deal to get married here um so, it, it, you know, there's there's all that. But is 
it feels a little bit like you're almost like motivating yourself with shame. Whereas like long-term dating, you can kind of be like, well, if I just, I can just evaluate if I still love them enough. Whereas marriage, I have all this social pressure. Is that social pressure like a, a good thing or a bad thing? So I don't really know where marriage became social pressure. I mean, I can see it from where I grew up and, you know, the big weddings and the hoopla and the family, um, my husband and I, who will be married 25 years this year. Congratulations. Thank you. I know it's an accomplishment because I couldn't do it. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. Um, but we, we met and we were married in four months. So from the day we met, we were never apart. And I'm not saying that happens for everybody. Um, but we didn't have all that pomp and circumstance. We made a decision with our family's blessings because we didn't want to leave anyone out to really just get married on our own. And that's what we did. Um, we technically eloped and had a private ceremony. Um, and then, you know, some six weeks later, we had like a big dinner just to celebrate the fact that we were married, but we didn't, didn't go that route. Um, I think the pressure comes from within that a couple makes the pressure on them. Um, I don't think that anyone should allow another person to sit in judgment of their relationships. I know a lot of people who have been married and after 25, 30 years, sometimes there's a death or sometimes people just grow apart and they separate um, and divorce. And then they long-term date the next companion in their life because they're not looking to have children in that second part of their life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like there's, they're on to another level. They've already lived one life. Um, and now they're in the sunset more of their life. You know, when you, when you pass the age of 50, let's say you have less days in front of you than you have behind you. Um, so there might be a place where I feel like long-term dating is really appropriate. Um, it's just a different mindset, but I, I feel, and I feel for younger people today, um, that they feel that their marriage should be about everyone else, but them. And it shouldn't, it really should just be about you and the person you love and you starting out this life journey together. Well, I, I can, I know a lot of young people just have, um, and speaking from myself when I got married, you know, just really underdeveloped views of love, you know, um, really simplistic views of love. I mean, and I think I was, you know, at least on a higher level than some of the people I was around, you know, like I, I thought I was a pretty smart 22 year old and, you know, whatever, <laughs> but like it, it's still, there's just so much life that's, uh, ahead of you and the kind of commitment you're making is, is a, is a big one. Um, mm -hmm. I'm interested in that children bit a little bit. Cause I, I, you know, co-parenting is, as is a lot less stigmatized than it used to be, which is good. Um, cause you can definitely co-parent effectively. Yes. Um, but it's, it's, you know, there's some people who are kind of pushing for a movement to, you know, co-parent with your long-term partners and not so much worry if y'all end up staying together, but still focus on the kid. That sounds fine and dandy, but uh, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Well, co-parenting takes a lot of maturity on both 
both parents. Um, and so if it's a situation where there has been a divorce um, and over the last, you know, 20 years or so, um, and the roles have changed, but let me just say in the traditional role where the primary earner or provider was the man and the primary caregiver had been the woman or the wife, um, men have gotten much more involved with their children over the last 20 years, which has lent itself to this success of co-parenting their children. And it's really been a very positive thing for the children to have both parents equally involved, but also really wanting to share the love of parenting. Because, you know, one thing that, that people should really understand is once you bring children into the world, they are your responsibility really forever together, you know, because those children then have milestone moments which you will always share with the other parent, whether you're with them or not. And I mean, when you have children, whether it's, you know, bar bat mitzvahs, uh, confirmations or communions or, you know, on, on the religious end or weddings, you know, or graduations from school or professions or jobs or then their weddings and then grandchildren, you know, you and this other person who brought these children into the world are always going to be connected that way. I mean, unless you don't want to. I mean, there there clearly are times where people refuse to um, maintain any connection uh, with their significant other. So if you're long-term dating somebody and you have a child with them and you haven't married them, I think that's very complicated in some ways for the child. And there might be a lot of insecurity built into that. Sure. I think it definitely could go wrong. And it's very new because, you know... um... A few years ago, you know, people used to say, uh, you know, uh, what, 50% of marriages end in divorce, right? And then the number's kind of gone down, but it's just because people aren't really getting married as much has been my understanding of how that statistic works. Um, but uh, yeah, bringing up children's interesting because a lot of people would say that's the most complicated factor in a divorce. Uh, <laughs> but is it is it children or is it money? Do you think money is the well, most complicated factor? <laughs> Well, I actually think it's it's both, and I think it really depends. So depending on how much money there is when a couple decides to divorce, if there's not enough money to go around to support two households, and the person that was originally the primary caregiver or the stay-at-home parent who hasn't been really earning their own living for a long time and reliant on the primary provider. And if the primary provider uh, wants to give that person a hard time, um, there's a lot of insecurity and fear. And then money makes the divorce very complicated. Sometimes there's too much money. And that also becomes a control factor, um, also complicating a divorce. But Obviously, if there are minor children, small children, if one parent or partner tries to use those children in some way to hurt their other partner, that becomes the most complicated issue. So it's really important up front to identify the role of the parents, how they're going to define those roles if they're not going to be together and they're going to go through divorce, 
how the children will live. Will it be in both houses, one house? And wrap up all the issues relating to the children because that is the most emotionally charged issue. It's always about the children. And once that issue is wrapped up, both parties can settle down and focus on the reality of the fact there will be two homes and how are we going to make it work? And then the money doesn't complicate it as much. You know, if you start backward, you sometimes if you start with the money, it, it makes it more difficult. So I think it just really depends on the emotional maturity of the couple. And, you know, if they really want to put the best interest of their children first, then, then it becomes uncomplicated, if, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like deal with the emotionally heavy stuff first before all the practical stuff. Because uh, I would say in my divorce, you know, I won't, I won't air too much dirty laundry, but I'll say this much. Um, you know, we were poor. <laughs> like we weren't like, we weren't rolling in dough. We were living in a 500 square foot apartment, you know. Um, and uh, as, you know, up and down as our, our departure might have been, like me and her were decent people. So we were like, well, if this goes south, let's not get ugly with each other, right? Like, yeah. there's, that's not going to help anything. And we didn't have kids, so we didn't have to worry about that. Um, but, you know, I'm like, okay, we don't have money, we don't have kids, so this should be a pretty smooth legal process, right? Like, that was where my head was. Like, there shouldn't be any complication. Um, and she had a lawyer. I did not, uh, because, frankly, I couldn't afford it, um, which is a whole issue. But, again, I don't want to air too much <laughs> dirty laundry right. about how our finances worked. Um, but, you know, we had two cars. Well, one of the cars suddenly was not uh, able to be driven anymore in this process. And then things got ugly overnight. I mean, like, and it, and none of these, these were not nice cars. These cars were worth less than a couple grand, you know? Right, right. <laughs> um, but it's, it's truly, I, I agree with you. I think it had very little to do with the actual number. I think it mm -hmm. had to do with that feeling of like loss of control on, on both of our parts, you know? Uh, and yeah. what could we control? What could we not control? That kind of stuff. Um, I will tell you that, that I think you are hitting the nail right on the head and that not only is it a feeling of loss of control, some people don't even know this unconsciously will fight or argue over the smallest thing because they're, they're, they're at, they're at that point where they know it's over, but they truly are not ready to let go. Like it, it's, it's the finality of it. I mean, yeah. do you remember what an iPod is before yes. you need them? I mean, I'm not I, that young, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have literally had couples fight over the iPod music library. Wow. So, and they really did not want to be together. It was clear they did not want to be together and that the marriage was at an end and it wasn't about money and it was about loss. It was about the finalization and accepting the loss. So, you know, it becomes very real. So sometimes that's what happens, you know, and it has, a, you don't have to have a lot of money. You can have a little money, but it's that, that control factor that people do feel out of control and, and it, and it can make you do things you wouldn't otherwise do. 
Yeah, no, there's, I, I mean, I could, I could write a list of quotes that if I, you know, read them back of things I said in those few months, I'd be like, oh my gosh, what a jerk. <laughs> like, what was I saying? Because it's just, yeah, it's a very emotionally stressful time where just things slip out that you don't mean. You're just, you know, grieving. Well, you're grieving and you're also reacting to what's being put in front of you. And if you don't have help through the process, it's hard to process it. And it's hard to take that step back and, and understand that you're, you're being um, almost taunted a little bit to get a reaction. And that sometimes you need someone to say, you know what, cease and desist, walk away. Don't give that any energy. You know, y- you need support through a time like that. Yeah. And I'm very thankful I had uh, uh, different levels of support. And I'm also glad my partner did, too, you know, that it wasn't just us going alone. And again, it started off very mature, but a snap of the fingers, one bad thing that was just too much, you know, for for the emotion, just (laughs) sent it, sent it into a spiral. Well, so I know we've touched on some of this, but but why do you think divorce is so stigmatized in like certain cultures in the U.S. in certain parts of society? I think divorce represents failure, and I think that um, people in general don't deal well with what they perceive is failure. Now, I don't like that word failure. Um, I think that we're all met with challenges in life and it's how we deal with them. I really do believe there are people that are meant to be together from the beginning of time till, till they do die. I do believe there are relationships that are meant to bring children into the world and run its course and then people move on. Um, I don't believe that it's a set mold and I think humans as a whole think it's some sort of um, reflection on their themselves that when something doesn't work out, and it's not just relationships, it could be a job, it could be school, you know, it could be anything that the failure, there's shame in the failure or shame in on the family or something like that in, in failing because it, it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. It, it wasn't the success or it wasn't like your neighbor's, you know, marriage or fancy car they drive or whatever you want to relate it to. And I, I think that's why it's so stigmatized is that somewhere somebody decided that that divorce is failure. Maybe it's just you made a wrong choice. That doesn't mean it's a failure. I think it's a failure when people stay in a relationship that doesn't allow them to be truly honest with themselves with their partner, doesn't allow them to develop and grow as a human being. Um, I think that's the ultimate failure. So th- that's just that's just my thought about it. Um, I'm sure that many others have other thoughts, but that's what I think. I think you're right. I, I, I definitely think you're right. Um, I mean, I've, I, I know you're right from my experience, at least, that that was, I mean, the feeling was feeling like I failed, you know, Um and in some ways I did, right? Like, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to shame myself, but, you know, I can see behavior. I can see, um, you know, 
I can just see mistakes that were clearly mistakes, right? <laughs> that were, and I can even see like, there was a lot of stuff that I can go, okay, I didn't know any better, right? Like I was young. What was, I was learning, like I made some mistakes along the way, but there's other things where I'm like, I knew better and I still acted like badly, right? Um, and I think that's like a, that's like a really hard, um, shameful thing to overcome especially in the heat of the moment while it's happening um that that i think that and that can be really scary and and i think it does keep a lot of people you know in what you're describing which are worse situations which which is staying unhappy you know i told my ex i i straight up said that um you know when when finally all our uh untalked about issues were starting to be talked about in a therapy session um, I said straight up, I was like, I would be content to not talk about this and be miserable for 40 years, or at least that's what I was telling myself in my brain. And that just is so unhealthy. <laughs> right. I, I think that's, that's unhealthy. It's, but I think it's common. I think it's really common to just say, well, I'll just take, you know, this issue to my grave and just kind of put around the rest of my life. And that's a uh, man. Talk about a doom and gloom perspective on, on your future. I I think part of it is is because you want to try to make it work, you know. It's you, you think it's supposed to work. You you know, you went down this path and and then and then it doesn't work. So sometimes and this is all humans, if we deny it, if we just kind of stuff it in a box, you know, maybe it'll won't rear its ugly head again. Um and maybe we'll be okay. And I think a lot of people do do that. Um, in, because they don't know how to have that tough conversation with the person they're with. Um, and I do feel if you're in your younger twenties, I think that's really young, you know, to commit for the rest of your life to someone else because, and now you're older. So you see when you look back, right. How much, oh, yeah, no, 100%. Grown, right. And, and matured. I mean. I always say to young women, wait till you turn 25, wait till you see how you change. Like overnight, something just happens. I don't know what it is that, that stretch between 25 and 30, you know, right around there. Um, it's, it's amazing. And, and with, with young men, you know, it's like you're, we're all young and we're all evolving over time. I mean, some people do, they get together, you know, they graduate college, they get married at 22 years old and they're together forever, you know? Um, and a lot of others aren't, they might be like you where they don't discuss the issues and just would rather not deal with it than maybe deal with the possibility of not being together. Um, but I, I do feel that, um, the shame goes away and the feeling of failure goes away with age, time, and life experience. And you realize that the person you are becoming as you keep evolving and growing wasn't maybe that person in that relationship at that time, you know? And I think everyone needs to be the best they can be for themselves so they can be the best they can be to everyone else in their world. And you know deep down inside when you're in something that's just not right. 
so well put and you're so nice to talk to. So why are divorce lawyers so stigmatized? <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, we're, we're the mess makers, right? Um, I, th- I think there's, we're stigmatized because depending on, you know, how you feel about divorce um, and and look, there are people who, you know, my parents will be so upset if I get a divorce or, you know, my friends or, you know, you know, my community, um, meaning my religious community will be so, you know, so upset. And then you go to the divorce lawyer who helps you through the process. So we're easy to blame, right? We're, we're the bad guys. We're, we're, we're really easy to, to put the blame on. Well, it's really their fault. You know, um, when the fact is, is most divorce lawyers are, we act as therapists, counselors, best friends, confidants. Um, you know, we help to reshape people's lives so that they can live them to the fullest and be the best they can really be, you know, in their family, in their community, to their best friends, to their significant others, to their children. And what a lot of people don't like to accept is that the two people who want to get out of a relationship that they know is not right or they know is wrong. And, and I'm not talking about abusive relationships because that is never acceptable. Abuse is never acceptable um, of any kind, physical or emotional. So I just say that. So for, for whatever the reason the relationship isn't, isn't working, um, the couple that wants to, to go apart, you know, the social pressures, maybe they're feeling, it's so much easier to just blame the divorce lawyer because, you know, we're the ones that make it happen. Pretty much, you know, uh, unless you're able to do it maturely on your own and you can fill out all the paperwork and file with the courts, we enable the client to take those next steps. And what a lot of outsiders don't know is that most of the time the couple is not on the same page emotionally. So if one is really mature about it and one is not, and they both have lawyers, the lawyer will act almost in the capacity of that significant other. You know, I don't practice that way. You know, I always think there's a better way to separate two people who don't want to be together, who've come into a legal contract, who want to get out of it without this high emotional impact. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't come up against other lawyers that, you know, would like to rip my throat out. Um, and my clients also, which is how we get, you know, reputations of it's the lawyer's fault kind of thing, but it really is never the lawyer's fault. It's really up to the two clients who hire the lawyers to, you know, cut through the red tape, cut through the emotional angst and, make the best possible deal for both clients to walk away because there are no winners in divorce. We don't win. It's not a contest. Y'all get paid though. Come on. <laughs> right, because we work really, really, really hard. Absolutely. Because, you know, Absolutely. you know, of course. I mean, I counsel my clients. Um, I help my clients make a new life for themselves. I have them really look at themselves as opposed to their partner. Um, I don't play the blame game. I don't accept the blame game. You have to be responsible for your own behavior. 
Um, and if you want out, then you have to make a plan for your future. If you want to be my client, mm. because it's not what happens in the next three to six months. It's where do you see your life in the next three years? How are you going to get there? And I'll help yeah. you. Definitely so. a radical life change, no matter the situation, right? hundred um, percent. Yeah. I'll, I'll confess, you know, these are not sides of myself I like to show. Uh, so I've mentioned earlier, you know, uh, my partner had a lawyer. I did not. Um, I think there were a couple things at play there. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to be able to do it myself, you know, like I had that pride in me. Um, and also I was, I was blindsided by it. So like, I wasn't prepared, you know, (laughs) um, to, to deal with it. Um, I, I beat up on her lawyer a little bit verbally. Um, and, uh, to be fair, I'm not like, a am not super, I'm, I've never been verbally abusive. Like I don't, I don't. I'm, I just when I'm angry, I let people know that I'm angry in very clear words. <laughs> but okay. I try not to like I try not to personally attack or anything like that. But I was getting very frustrated with her lawyer because her lawyer was doing her job. Like honestly, that's all it was. And I was able to get there eventually. But one of the things that helped is uh I was having a phone call with her lawyer and um the lawyer goes, uh, you know we're arguing about the specifics of the car thing. And uh, eventually I just go, I, I broke down a little and said, you know what? This is really hard because I'm losing the love of my life. <laughs> and like, that is what matters to me more than any of this. And I still have to argue about this stuff. And she mm-hmm. goes, John, I'm going to be very honest with you. You're doing nothing wrong by advocating for yourself. Like, you know, just kind of like a nice moment of just like, she was not taking on the emotional burden of me, like having to fight for property stuff on my own, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I think that really did shift my perspective a lot and realize, listen, the law, because I was lawyer blaming a lot, like, Oh, the lawyer must be putting these ideas in her head or, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I think you're right. I don't, I don't think that most often happens at all. No, I mean, it's usually, you know, the client will tell you one thing and they'll tell you your spouse told them something, but they're clearly telling their lawyer something different. You yeah. Know? I mean, I've been yeah. there. <laughs> I've seen it. Well, and there's there's a lot. Of, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of like there's in, in the heat of those moments. I'm sure what you're comfortable, what you're able to say candidly to someone you're paying to fight for you versus someone you're trying to leave. <laughs> like right. you're going to talk to those people differently, you know? Sure. Of, of course. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, can well, you, you've alluded to this, but can a divorce ever go well <laughs> or is it always messy? Well, no. Um, I've, I do a lot of what we call uncontested divorces where the clients are completely on the same page um, and they want to separate in the most amicable way possible, uh, but they do want representation on both sides and they're both very mature and a lot of times they've already ironed out most of the terms themselves and they're looking for guidance on certain issues that they're not certain of. Uh, and one, one, one side will hire, let's say me and we'll draft a, an agreement together that they then will present to their spouse who will give to their lawyer and they go pretty easily. Um, usually those divorces are where both are financially competent, I'd like to say, or, you know, they're both 
able to feel that they can take care of themselves um, or um, they have such a relationship where the moneyed spouse has already provided substantial funds to the non-moneyed spouse and isn't looking to hurt them in any way so that it's able to move smoothly. Um, So no, divorces don't always have to be messy. Not at all. In fact, today, mediation is a much more popular avenue of separating where uh, you hire a neutral, which is hopefully a lawyer, um, who helps you navigate the waters and come up with an agreement that is palatable to both parties, but the parties themselves really work out the terms. So no, I don't don't think they're always so messy. They're not always the War of the Roses, a movie if you haven't seen, you really should because Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner, it's an old one, Um, and Intolerable Cruelty with uh, Billy Bob Thornton and Catherine Zeta-Jones, another good one. Um, They really are eye-opening and and. The first one is um, the knockdown drag out. And the second one is a little more subtle and uh, very funny too. But it, it gives you a different perspective on on divorces and how they can go or may go. Yeah, because I think most most young people I know, like one, they're not, they're, they're definitely the definitions of relationships and marriage are changing and I think mostly positive ways um, mm-hmm. with you know probably some negative consequence you know uh, inventing the ship rep while we make a new ship but um, but you know right. we're 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 going forward which is fun but um yeah I I think uh, I think there's a lot of cool stuff happening um I would still say there's like this weird uh you know stigma about divorce like we've talked about and uh but it but yeah i think they all i have a lot of divorce friends it's funny uh i've I've joked with uh another divorce friend before when you become divorced all of a sudden you're a magnet for everyone who's ever been divorced (laughs) they just all pop up out of nowhere um and you know in talking i think everyone starts that process uh you know if there's not abuse going on but like starts that process and uh well let's make this amicable amicable but then all of a sudden it's uh it 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 doesn't always end that way um but that's comforting to know that yeah if there's if there's enough maturity it sounds like means is a is a big factor too like if there's not as much like financial stress and other factors uh, 100 100% you know yeah. i mean it also depends on how involved you are with each other financially you know if you've purchased a house if there's a mortgage if there's a car if there are cars if there's credit card debt you know and if there's not enough money to make that work out that adds a lot of stress and angst. And if the parties don't understand, when you are separating, you are taking one household and creating two, right? Now you have two. So if the parties can't have that, you know, come together moment that like, if we really want out, we got to make it work out, then it gets messy. That makes sense. Yeah. Um Thank you for all of that. That's really enlightening on just kind of a like uh, baseline level of kind of understanding what situations look like. But I think there's certainly like some special issues in evangelicalism that I've either witnessed or heard about. Um, you know, evangelicals or and most honestly, just most Christians uh, believe that you should wait um, 
to have any kind of sexual relation until you're married and that any sexual contact is sinful if you're not married. Um, but I uh, and many other former and present Christians uh, that I know can attest that uh, sex life with little sex education and little experience typically causes a lot of marital issues. Um, the biggest problem being that like all sexual issues are are still so taboo that they don't even know how to talk about them. Um, have you seen any cases where waiting to have sex added to or caused issues in a marriage? Well, I'm not going to say that I've particularly seen any issues, but what I can say on this subject is if you don't know your partner and you get married first, so I always get the saying wrong. So if you put the, you know, horse before the cart or the cart before the horse, um, you're going to run into problems and a lot of stumbling because you may, you and your partner may not see things the same way in the area of sex. Um, and if you're finding out on your wedding night, which is, there are a lot of religions that do that, you know, um, that feel that you should save yourself for your wedding night and, and things like that. But if you, if you don't understand the basics of sex education or, you know, the nature of a sexual relationship with someone, it could, it really could be the end of the marriage before you even, you know, get out the gate or get on the honeymoon, you know, because if you're not, if your chemistry isn't well suited or you don't have the same ideas, then it's, it's, it's putting two people together who really don't want to be together. Um, and it, it doesn't add to the happiness of marriage. And I just, for me, um, and, I, and I don't really understand this, and, and I think it's a question that's been asked for many, many, many times. Here in America, we have such a odd relationship with the human body and are so fearful of it. And it's not like that in the rest of the world, where the human body is praised and, and embraced and and loved and isn't seen as such a taboo thing. Um, you know, we praise a lot of other things here in this country, which I find strange, like violence is, is okay, um, and things like that. So um, it's, a, it's a tough question. I, I feel that, look, we're not talking about being, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, 16, 17. No, I, I don't think when you're that young, you should be engaging in sexual relations. But I think when you're a young adult and you're educated and you're in your early 20s, I, I think that before you take that leap of faith, you at least need to have, you know, conversations with the person that you're in love with. If you're not having that sexual relationship at that time about what you think it's about. Because if you're not even on the same page, then then you're heading for divorce before you even say I do. Yeah, and I know a lot of, you know, some of my listeners might still be Christian and wrestle with some of this question. Like, I want to be very clear, like, it's not normal to wait to kiss your partner till you're engaged or married. Like, that's not it wasn't it wasn't normal in Bible times. <laughs> it was, you know, that that's a recent thing that has it's, is U.S. based. Um, and also, like you were saying, like, yeah, in other parts, of, 
skinny dipping, right? Like a lot of European countries and, you know, you take off all your clothes. We don't do that here. You know, we do have like some some interesting stuff about our, our bodies uh, culturally. Yeah. So I think it definitely causes problems. And I know another problem it causes, and it did in my case and many others, is you engage in, you justify things and say, well, that's not technically sex. And so you'll like, uh, you know, find the loopholes or whatever, no pun intended. Um, and uh, and you'll, uh, you know, do various things. But that creates a lot of problems, too, because your expectations, your body development, your preference development, mm-hmm. and then also what you're willing to talk about becomes very um, veiled and strange and uh, uncomfortable to talk about even after you're married. Um, so yeah, saving yourself till marriage, I just want to reiterate while I'm not here to judge anyone's choices, you know, I, I waited to have uh, intercourse till I would till not even my wedding night, like a couple days later. Um, and it was, uh, not good. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. Not good. Uh, cause it brought up a lot of things that I had never talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, you know, I'm not trying to shame anyone, but it needs to be said that that's not normal. And if you're being told that that's normal and okay, in the best way, it's just a lie. Um, it, that's my hot take. You don't necessarily have to agree. <laughs> I, I just don't think it's realistic to a successful relationship, you know, yeah. to, to not explore the beauty of a relationship. And part of that beauty is sex. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not judging anyone, but it is a vibrant part of any relationship of two people together. Um, And if you don't share that and you're stuck with someone because you said I do because you didn't explore it, it, it's it's disheartening. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, another big even uh, issue with evangelicalism is evangelicals and most conservative Christians believe that homosexuality is a sin. And um, this means that sometimes marriage partners don't realize their accurate, accurate, you know, sexuality or gender identity until they're already married, um, which sounds horrifying to me, honestly. Uh, have you ever dealt with cases where people felt cheated out of exploring their sexual identity before marriage? I've seen that a lot. And they ultimately end up um, divorced and they move into a better relationship where their identity is what they know it to be. Um, There have been, and I I think now in our times now, there's such wide acceptance of gender or non-gender roles and relationships, but um, certainly in my age group, which I won't say, but it's much older than yours. Twenty twenties, thirties, right? Mine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Thank you. Now we're friends. No, you gotta, right, go cool. up, you gotta go up a couple more decades there. Um right. but I will say that a lot of um let's just say men in particular realize that after getting married and having children that they always knew they were different. And they realized they were different and didn't want to live a lie, which is just as bad, right? To be dishonest in your relationship and with someone you love. And it didn't mean that they didn't love the person they married, but they were not heterosexual and they knew it for a fact. And now they knew for sure. Um, 
And so they separated. And for some relationships, uh, the spouse knew that there was something wrong and they were just grateful to know it really wasn't them, wasn't about them. Um, it was the sexual orientation of their partner and, you know, they've remained friends and, you know, their children understand it. And maybe that's helped their children who also have questions about how they feel about themselves. Um, I just find that judgment of others, man, judging other man is wrong. I find that I have a very strong belief in, I say God, which is a higher power, you know, and other people might call it something else. And it may not align to any particular religion, but the one thing I truly believe is that I am not the judge, jury of God or of anyone else. So, and no one should be of me. And I don't know where over time man got this idea in his head that he had a right to make these judgments of others. And I feel that's where a lot of stigmatism comes from. It's brought about other by other people who come together in a group and tell others, well, it's wrong. And, and I'm, I'm not going to get into any of the, you know, religious teachings or the Bible or that, because I'm not going to say that I know that, but I just know in my heart that that doesn't sit well and doesn't sound right to me. Well, it's not right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I obviously think a lot of these rules do come from like, um, not a God, but people saying that a God said something, you know, um, whether, whether, you know, it was during the Bible or way after, you know, there's been a lot of people who have used the Bible to, to make it say things it doesn't say. Um, right. sure. and so, yeah, I, I think that's where a lot of judgment does come from. It comes from other things too. I'm, I'm, I'm not just trying to beat my own dead horse, but, uh, yeah. Um, and you know, it, you're right. Like you can't judge people for their decisions. If, if people are getting divorced, sometimes it's just best to split ways. <laughs> like sometimes it's just the best option well, forward. I, I really feel that, that our, our responsibility is to be the very best person that we can be. Right. I mean, we're not God. We're supposed to be in the image of one, right? So we're supposed we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. That's the idea. We're supposed to learn from those mistakes and and move on. So I just feel that people, if all people just would try and be the very best they can be for themselves, you have to look in the mirror, right? This is how I always I, I speak to my own family or my friends when something's going on. Do the very best you can. Be able to put your head on the pillow at night. Look in the mirror and say, did I do everything I can, you know, in a certain situation? Because if I have, then I've done the best I can do. And now it's out of my control. Yeah, my therapist would always say, uh, control what you can. Don't worry about what you can't. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree. You have to you have to start with that man in the mirror. Um 
you know, Christians don't don't agree with us, though. Um, they they or at least evangelicals, uh, they simply believe that uh, God wants people to stay married and only in the most extreme of circumstances and sometimes not even then uh, should married people get divorced. Um, what do you think? Is there such a thing as a good enough reason to get divorced or should anyone be able to divorce for any reason or is it somewhere in the middle there? I'm going to say maybe somewhere in the middle. I mean, you know, when someone just wants to get a divorce, oh, I just want to get a divorce. Well, that's not true. There's always a reason, you know, and maybe you're not honest about the reason. Okay. that That's part of it. You know, some people don't want to be honest. They just don't want to tell what the reason is. Um, I don't think that there's just any reason is a good reason to get a divorce. But I, but I, but with that said, I feel that if you've reached a place in your relationship where you're no longer growing, no longer evolving, maybe you don't see eye to eye, maybe you've done everything you can do as a couple um, to make that relationship work, then then that's a good enough reason to say, you know what, it's time for us to part ways. And you can part ways with love. You don't have to part ways with hate. I mean, who made that rule up? What, where is it written that you have to hate the person that you married, loved, cherished, and for some reason, and it might be a very deeply private reason between two people, you have decided to go your own way. You don't have to hate that other person. When you read about Charles and Linda in the book, they are a couple that divorced, lived three houses apart, both remarried both with children, and all their holidays are together. They are the biggest blended family I have ever met. So, you know, obviously a good enough reason to divorce, any abuse is a reason to divorce. If there's continued deception or dishonesty, you know, that's a good enough reason to divorce. Um, so I think it's somewhere in the middle. And I, and I think people that are in a relationship they know, they know, um, that it's, they've hit an end of a road, you know, and, and the reasons are personal. Um, but you just can't, I, I just think you just don't, can't say, oh, I just want to get a divorce and I'm going to walk out. It, it's never that simple. Yeah. And I, I do know that some couples struggle with using divorce kind of in arguments, you know, like they'll be like, well, we should just get divorced then when they're angry. And I think that's really unhealthy to just kind of bring that up casually. Um, yeah, I would never of... threaten that. Yeah, that's like the threat. I, I That to me is a red flag. If someone, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're arguing and they bring up divorce, that's because they've already thought about it. Hundred percent. Yeah. That that yeah. That just doesn't come up. That to that to me means not only did that person maybe think about it, they may have even taken a few steps toward that end, and they might be provoking you on purpose. So you really have to take a step back from that. Don't threaten. If you don't want to be with somebody, be a grown up. Be mature. Go to your partner. And say the reasons why it's not working for you. And your partner might be really, really devastated, but don't gaslight your partner into thinking you're in this relationship and in this marriage, but then use that word in a fight. So I would send up two red flags for that. 
one of one of the more subtle and some you know it's sometimes mentioned but it's never really explained rules of evangelicalism is that the main purpose of marriage is procreation or family raising they'll use the right. bible to to say it too um obviously not everyone can have kids or wants to have kids uh do you think couples in general talk clearly n- enough, though, about their perspectives on children before getting married? Well, they may not have in the past, but I do believe that the and I, I don't and I don't mean this in a in a in a, in a negative way. They, I'm when I say the younger set, you know, the millennials. Um, I feel that they definitely consider everything. Um, you know children, finances. Um, and I do believe that the younger, uh, generation does talk about, do we want to have children? How many are we thinking? Do we want to travel first? I I really think the conversation is more open now than it ever was before. I mean, let's face it, let's reel back to the 1950s where, you know, um, it, there was the man, the wife, you know, you know, he was the provider. She stayed at home. She raised the children, the white picket fence, right? And you had children. That's what you did. That's what was expected. But I think our world has changed so much today that I do believe, because I, I know this, I work with a lot of younger people. And I mean younger people. I mean, like, in their latter 20s, early 30s, you know, Um and these are considerations that they do talk about with their partners. So I think it's really good. Um, and I, I would hope a lot of young people do that because, you know, not everyone wants to have a child at 25. I didn't. <laughs> I wanted to work. I wanted to be a career girl. I wanted to do certain things. So I wanted to be with a partner that was going to take my lead in that role because I also knew I wanted to be a mother, but I wanted to be a mother on my terms, you know? And it happened to work out for me. And I did have my, my son later in life and it, and it, and it worked out and that's, that's okay, but it's not for everybody. Some people want to have four children. Well, you got to get started early. <laughs> you know, you, you can't wait too many years to do that. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, that people do talk more and more about having family today. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Um, you know, how about this one? There's obviously uh, signs of patriarchy just in our culture in general. Um, but in Christianity, it's it's way more intense. Uh, there's a lot of actual language about it. And it's like explicitly preached that like a woman should submit to her husband. Um, in, it, it, and that happens in Christian ceremonies. Um, and to be clear, there's nothing wrong with each relationship deciding roles for themselves. Um mm-hmm. But gender roles can cause a great deal of harm. Uh, do you think these gender roles still affect relationships uh, nowadays? Well, I, I'm going to say I know um, there are other sects that do play, have gender roles. And the woman is still treated, for lack of a better word, like property. And... I, as a woman, find that very offensive. Um, you know, we in this country have treated women like that for a long, long time. Uh, women couldn't vote. You, you know, uh, they couldn't hold the same job as a man. I mean, today we still don't earn as much. You know, it's complicated. I don't believe that any human being has a right to have control over another human being. 
at all. I don't believe that that is intended. Now, people set up their house however they want. You know, someone stays home and raises the children. Someone goes out and works. You know, that, that that's between two people. Um, but this idea that that women should still submit somehow to men is very um, archaic. It, it just it, it does not resonate well um, with me. And I feel it takes away from the great role that women or mothers or mothering, whether you're a woman or not, you know, takes away from that role. Um, and I, 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 I find it, um, I, I just find it very disturbing to, to be very frank with you, John. And I, me too. I, yeah. I'm glad you agree with me since I'm the yeah. guest. I just go on this tirade about how I'm like, well, the real problem in marriage is women just don't listen to men. No, I don't, I don't think that at all. <laughs> they may not listen because <laughs> they know better. No, <laughs> yeah, kidding. I hope not. Right. I hope not. Uh, yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it it causes a lot of problems. I, I know it did. I mean, you know, I went to Bible college and the joke was ring by spring because uh, people would get engaged uh, their mm-hmm. freshman year. And, um, you know. I can tell you that most of the men at that Bible college, unconsciously, I don't think they were like all evil, like, you know, uh, prospectors who wanted a woman at home barefoot and pregnant. Like, but they they unconsciously had very problematic views of women based on how they were taught men and women should interact in a marriage. Um, Well, I'm just going to just put this in here just to give you an idea. there are still men and it, and it's not based in religion, so to speak. You know, there are some men, there are a lot of men that are financially, you know, uh, very wealthy. They feel that their spouse should stay at home, you know, do all the roles of, you know, a mother and a wife, and they discourage them from having their own agency, their own livelihood and their own life that doesn't surround them. You know, I call that narcissism. So just wanted to throw that in that there, there is a whole sect out there that it's not necessarily about um, the religious side, but there's a whole, whole group out there that behaves like that. Yeah, men are not great. I, I'll just say it. I'll average it. No, I, I'll average it out. I mean, of, of course, there's some great men out there, of course, but uh, you know, broad stroke purposes. Yikes. Um, <laughs> oh man, but yeah, you're right. I mean, anyway, obviously, yeah, it's not limited to to specific gender, but it is true that there are a lot of narcissistic men out there who, um, yeah. Yeah, especially if they have any kind of power, like wealth, will mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. use that to get their way. And in those relationships, when they're starting out those relationships, because I know and I've seen it, the women are enamored with the like the knight in shining armor and all the gifts and all the promises. And you know, I always say, you know, it's the four thousand square foot house with the you know picket fence that's really a stone wall and the escalade and they're really trapped inside a little prison yeah a fancy prison right right a fancy Uh, prison yeah yeah 
Yeah, I agree. I think I think it happens a lot, and I think I think you're absolutely right. It happens inside Christianity, but it also happens outside Christianity. That there's some there's some leftover uh, gender roles that cause a lot of problems. Whether we're uh, no matter how we talk about it, I think there's still a lot of stuff we're going by without talking about it. Um, you know, another unspoken rule in Christianity is that if everything does go south and a divorce is inevitable. The church leadership, at least in white evangelicalism, like wants to be heavily involved. And I like personally know of cases where like the use of lawyers was stigmatized because the church leaders were like, well, it's, you know, you should be coming to us and asking us for permission for a divorce, whether we can grant you one or not. In fact, in the denomination I grew up, there's specific policies about whether a church will recognize a divorce or not. can church leadership overstep their role when it comes to divorce? Well, I, I feel I can, you know, relate to this because we had an issue where um, in the Jewish religion, if you have a, uh, a religious marriage, you, in order to get a divorce, you need to get what's called a get. And it, that's the Jewish divorce. So, those leaders, those religious leaders get very involved in their own way um, and could make it very difficult for a woman to get the get. And why you need the get, if you are religious, is so that you can get remarried. And there have been books written about this where, where men were forced to give the get where they didn't want to because you were like, it was like slavery. We don't have indentured servitude in this country anymore, you know? Um, And I I feel that any leaders of a religion that want to supervise or somehow control the ending of a union, it sort of relates back to what we talked about earlier. I'm not really sure why, why a man, a human being, thinks that's their role. I, I, I'm not. I'm not certain um, why they think they should be in control. Because you know, there could be a lot of good intentions. I'm not going to say there aren't, but more often than not, when people want to control other people, there's something there that just doesn't seem um, good. Goodwilled or good intention. It just seems there's something more underlying there. Maybe more self-serving is a better word I'm kind of trying to find to use. That I feel that marriage is between two people, the relationship is between two people, and the end of it is between two people. So maybe that answers your question. I'm not really sure. I don't want to be stepping on anyone's toes. I don't pass any judgment on how anyone, you know, lives their life. Um I have friends from all religious backgrounds. Um, I respect all of that. Again, you know, um, my relationship with God is very private. Um, You know, so I just feel that man, I think too much puts himself on a a pedestal that that they don't belong on. Does does that help? Yeah, it does. Um... You know, I think you're absolutely right because, and I think that's helpful for people, you know, 
who might still be Christian, might still be religious, and are maybe going through a divorce process and how they evaluate their situation. Like, do not just do whatever your pastor says, because that doesn't mean that's not following God, right? Like, you can follow God and not just do whatever your pastor says. And Um, how do you know you won't go to another pastor and he'll say something different? Uh, I can almost guarantee he will, um, <laughs> or she I mean, will. I've, um, I've, I've had that with, you know, rabbis from all different yeah. sects. They will, t- they will tell you something different. And then you look at them and say, well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it should be, you know, you would think it would be uniform. It might not be, but you would think it would be. I will say in Christianity, it's sometimes striking how uniform it is, uh, okay. like almost scarily so, because there's a lot uh-huh. of shared language. But I would, but you're right. Like it, it, church to church, there can definitely be some different like approaches and views on what counts as a good divorce and what counts as a bad divorce, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you've you brought up this idea of legal marriage and religious marriage. It's interesting because you know a lot of religious people would argue that marriage you know, the word came from religion. Um, mm-hmm. So is there a clear separation between legal marriage and religious marriage? I think there is because when you get married legally, there are state laws to getting married and there are state laws to getting divorced. Some states make it more difficult to actually get the divorce. They make it easy to get married, but they might make you jump through a few hoops to actually untie that knot. But once that legal knot's untied, if you had a religious divorce, it's really incumbent on both parties. Um, So like in New York, both parties sign an affidavit that say they will not interfere with, they will do everything to cooperate to make sure that if there are religious divorces necessary, that both parties will cooperate to make sure that that happens. Now, I've had situations where we had to get the religious divorce first because it was pretty clear that if the couple was divorced by the state first, that one party would try and interfere with the religious divorce. Do you know what I'm saying? So we never want to do that, you know? So that's why sometimes if you have one of those scenarios, you definitely want to speak with a lawyer so they can help maybe help you navigate those waters um, and make sure you get what you need because Look, if it's important to you to be, you know, remarried in a church or in a certain temple, you might need that 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 piece of paper or that blessing or or that sacrament or whatever it is from your religion to do that. And if your partner, you know, bails on you, you know, because you're legally divorced, you might be stuck and you might not be able to marry someone who has those certain beliefs. So um, it definitely there is a clear separation between between the legal piece and the uh, religious piece, but they do intersect. And you have to make sure that, I think the harder one is the religious piece. You want to make sure that you get what you need to get. Yeah, because that could lead to a lot of unhappiness later. I mean, I'm just, sure. I'm imagining the power dynamics there because like, you know, in my faith, like they would recognize the Christian marriage, Christian marriage before legal marriage. Like they would say, that's the marriage that counts or whatever. The legal marriage is just something we do because we live here. Right. Um, well, I've heard that. I, I have heard that. Yeah. So it's it, it could definitely, you know, I, I didn't grow up this extreme, but I could see certain churches having dynamics where like 
oh, well, you might have gotten legally divorced, but you're still married. So you're, you know, not being a good wife by not living with your husband. Like all sorts of like crazy things could come out of that. Um, right. Sure. Wow. Uh, this has been great so far. Do you have any uh, general advice that you give to people who are unhappy with their marriage? So if you're unhappy in your marriage, the first thing I discuss with a potential client, and I say potential because not everybody who walks through my door becomes a client. First, I ask them what's really going on with them. I think you have to take self-inventory. You know, maybe it's really not your marriage. Maybe you think it's your marriage. Maybe you've come to a certain point in your life. Maybe your children are getting older. Maybe you gave up a career or some dream that you've wanted to follow and you haven't done that. And you're starting to question everything. And of course, that would be the marriage too. Because somehow it's easier to focus on the union than to focus on ourselves, right? It's, it's really hard to be brutally honest with yourself and about where you are in life and what makes you tick. And more often than not, and I work with a lot of women, the women I work with really come to the conclusion that it's not so much the relationship, but really they're unhappy now at the phase of life they're in, and they don't know how to move to the next phase. So they think it's the marriage. So, you know, I give my clients some exercises to do and conversations, and we talk for a while. Um, and when they start to figure out what it is that's really bothering them deep down inside... And they make a plan and they put that plan in place. They tend to find out that they really aren't really unhappy in the union. They're just were unhappy where they were. So if they do all of that and they resolve their issues or whatever was making them feel the way they were feeling, and they've taken steps toward maybe doing something about it, and then they find that they're still unhappy with the relationship. Then they take an honest assessment of the relationship, but now they're in a different position. They're not coming from a position of, you know, being like in a position of weakness or self-pity sometimes or feeling down. They're feeling stronger about themselves and their identity, and they have a clearer vision of their future. And maybe now that relationship they're in the marriage isn't living up to it. So now you have to go to step two, which is speaking with your partner. And once you speak with your partner, you may find they're either exactly on your same on the same page or they are absolutely clueless. Because let's face it, folks, we're not mind readers, right? Most people are not mind readers. Your partner may have no idea that you're unhappy because you don't tell them or because you walk around with a smile on your face or you give no indication. And maybe your partner, once they hear how you feel, will look at you and say, well, we're going to fix this. I'm going to work on myself or we're going to work on the relationship. You might be pleasantly surprised. And then the relationship evolves to the next level. See, I think the problem is, is too many people think when you first get together with your partner, that it's going to always be what it was from day one. It's not your relationship is going to grow. It's going to evolve. Your love changes. It deepens. It, it, 
it, it deepens in ways I can't even put into words, but you have to put the work in. And it's not just work into the relationship, it's work into yourself. So before you blame the relationship and think you're unhappy in your marriage, first look inward. Figure out if you're really happy, because if you're not, then you got some work to do. Once you figure that out, then look at the marriage. And if you're still unhappy at the end of the road, then maybe separating and divorcing is the right answer. I know that was a little bit long, but I, I hope it was a bit helpful. So helpful. I was I was big smile on my face because I just agree a hundred percent with everything you just said. Um I I tell people all the time you cannot be honest with other people if you can't be honest with yourself. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. I yeah. mean it has to be step one. Right. It has to be step one. And and don't be afraid of the hard conversations. You married somebody who wanted to marry you. You know, it, it was a mutual thing. So when you figure out what's going on with yourself, then find the right time to sit down with your partner and say, this is what's going on. You know, maybe they'll be relieved. Maybe they've noticed you're not as happy and they really can't figure it out and don't know how to make you happy. You know, maybe they'll be relieved that you've opened the door to the conversation because maybe they're not sure how to ask you what's wrong. You know, sometimes people don't like being asked that question, you know. Um, so I, I feel like relationships can be salvaged. I don't think that divorce is always the answer. I feel before you get there, there's always work to be done. Um, I'm, I am the divorce lawyer who believes in love. That is my mantra, um, you know. And, and, and I think you really have to, like I said, you always have to do the very best you can so you could put your head on your pillow at night and look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, I've done everything I can. And then if you come to the same conclusion, then it's the right one for you. Well said. I do have I have one last question and I, I want you to, you know, be honest with me if you disagree. But this is something I've thought about uh ever since my divorce and ever since I've been on this journey away from my faith that I grew up with. You know, I believe that um, evangelical churches purposely want young people to get married before they are ready, then make it feel sinful and shameful to get divorced so that they can control two people for the price of one. Because in their patriarchal system, the man has all the authority over the wife. So if they get young people married and they can control a guy, they can control two people one you know two for the price of one is that conspiracy hat territory or uh, is my accusation fair what what are your reactions to that idea well i'm going to say it's probably not just in your system i'm going to say that in the world that we we currently live in and that we live in and the world i live in and with everything i've seen i do feel that the world is still very male dominated, that women are more easily controlled um, because of that. And that if enough of those women marry those types of men that want that kind of control, which means they're not looking for an equal partner in life, then yes, you get two for the price of one. And it's not fair and it's not right. And that would be in anything. There are a lot of women out there that, you know, we've all heard that, that we call them trophy wives, right? Uh, you know, men marry these beautiful women to put on their arms, squire around. 
and they're expected to do whatever it is their husband asks them to do, you know, you know, dress a certain way, talk a certain way, vote a certain way, have friends a specific way, which is much like what you're talking about, um, and present to the world a certain lifestyle um, and a certain type of relationship, which is in essence a fraud. Um, but we have a lot of people like that in the world. And, you know, I don't know why, but I feel that men that want to be so in control of someone else or another woman, it's really more of a reflection of who they are, um, and what they're about and maybe the insecurities they have because of the need to have such power over someone else. Um, it's actually kind of sad. Um, so I'm going to say that your observation as opposed to an accusation is a fair one. Well, thank I, I appreciate that. And I think that's actually really insightful to be like, listen, like the trophy wife example might be, you know, more broadly recognizable. Um, but yeah, it's all about public image. Right. And the second, uh, Mm -hmm. relationship is about, everyone except the two people in it, the relationship mm-hmm. is not really a relationship. Right. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I see it here um, where I live and work in a, you know, um, pretty wealthy suburb of New York City. Um, I see it all the time. I see a lot of these women who may have had careers at one time. I described the, you know, the stone wall, the fancy prison, Right. You know, a lot of women living in the fancy prison and the husband is the be all and the end all. And they're kind of like looking up at him like he's, you know, on a pedestal, which um, I see it a lot. And uh, and it's it might be overly romantic in the beginning, but I, I got to imagine that gets kind of old in the end. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Leslie, this has been so thorough and awesome and like lots of just wisdom and awesome stuff uh, in this episode. Thank you for so much for coming on. Where can people find uh, more information about you or buy your book? Oh, so, um, well, you can go to uh, com and visit my website. There's tons of free information and articles about relationships, love, marriage, and divorce. Um, you can buy The Cult of the Black Card, A Divorce Lawyer's Tale of True Love, Lust, and Lies on Amazon. Uh, it's You can buy it in paperback or a Kindle. Um, and you can reach out to me through my website if you have any questions. Um, we certainly do that. We're also on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and uh, TikTok, I hear. <laughs> so <laughs> you um, sound like me i'm like i think i have a tiktok but i don't know uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, told, I'm told we have one no we do um so yeah i mean it would be great i'd love people to read my book i would love to hear for you know comments it's it's really about love and life lessons um and really what divorce taught me about love and life and my experiences it's 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 people are pleasantly surprised by the by the content um, and, and my website does definitely help people. Um, like I said, you went on it, you saw lots of advice and information. So, yeah, I will vouch for it. Lots of good stuff. I'm not quite finished with your book yet, but I'm looking forward to finishing it probably this week. Leslie, you've been so awesome. There'll also be a link to your website in the show notes. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you listener for stopping by. I appreciate y'all. 
If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to thecultofchristianity.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider subscribing for additional content. For only five bucks a month, you'll have access to two additional shows, Parsing Propaganda, where I review and critique Christian content, and Art, where we try some amateur religious trauma therapy. Every subscriber becomes a part of something bigger than this podcast as we endeavor to hold churches accountable, speak the truth boldly, and most importantly, love others despite our pain. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.